On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we have some good news. I know it's stunning to think there is good news, but we do. 25% of Canadians say they are actually optimistic about their finances going forward. I'm very surprised by that, but fully 25% say things are going to be great. We'll talk about why that is. Now, as we go to the good news, there is also a little bit of bad news. And that is the fact that Hamilton could now be facing not a $60 million deficit, a $120 million deficit. How in the world do we get out of that? Well, we'll discuss that as well. And Don Robertson will join us as we talk about Yolanda Ballard, who passed away the other day. And Harold, if you don't know who they are, if you're too young to know, you really got to do some research, but stick around. We'll help you get started. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We are going to try to concentrate on some good news to start out today because heaven knows the last number of months, we have been scouring the ends of the earth to find good news and it's been tough to find. So when we find it, we are leaping upon it with all the vigor we can possibly muster. And today there is... Well, I mean, there's a little bad news in here, but the there is a piece of good news that I want to concentrate on for a few minutes. The bad news, I'll get it out of the way, is that a third of Canadians feel that their financial future is in rough shape and probably not going to be all that much better for a while. And I don't think anyone could be terribly surprised by that. The good news, though, is that a quarter of Canadians say things are looking really good for their financial future. They are feeling very optimistic about their finances now and going forward into the next year, despite the pandemic and despite the shutdowns and despite businesses closing and people being laid off and on and on and on. 25%, almost 25% of people say their financial picture is looking pretty darn rosy. They are feeling good about it. Now, I don't want to dump a glass of cold water on the good news, but how? Well, let, let, let's try and stay with the good news for a bit here. Raymond Sawicki is the Chief Investment Officer with Mandeville Private Client. He joins me now. Raymond, how are you today? Very good, Scott. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for joining me. This, um, these numbers, I expected the 30% number where people were saying things are pretty rough. I did not expect a quarter of Canadians to say they were feeling really optimistic about their finances. What's going on? What am I missing? Yeah, no, I think there's uh, there's probably a number of reasons for that, Scott. One is certainly the psychology of it. As we've seen numbers of spread reduce, as we're seeing businesses reopen, we're thinking a lot more optimistic today. People are getting back to work. And so with that, there's this sense of normalcy returning. But there's also some hard data behind it. If we look back to last month, Payments Canada put out some numbers that I think were very interesting. Um, looking at it one way, it said 44% of Canadians we're actually seeing their incomes reduced. That doesn't sound like good news, but when you flip it on the flip side, that means that 56% of Canadians have seen no appreciable change in their income levels. So still comfortably earning the same amount of money that they were earning pre-COVID-19. The other stat that came out was that 75% of their expenditures across the greater uh, number of individuals are actually lower. That also is not surprising. People aren't going out to restaurants. They're not taking the vacations. They're not doing the discretionary spending. So it's a bit of a windfall to folks. They have um, 
more discretionary income to spend or to save, more importantly. So for those who are smart and those who are taking the opportunity to invest those monies, this is an opportunity to increase your wealth. Look at the stock market for the moment. We saw this very sharp drop when um, the pandemic was, it was announced as a pandemic excuse me, a pandemic. But then we've seen after that kind of three weeks of a very sharp drop, we've seen this very steady climb of the market. And if you look at Canadian uh, equities, just an example, peak to trough, they fell 37%. But over 60% of that drop has now been erased. It's been reflated. So I think there's a general optimism, Mm -hmm. both on the income side, both on the savings rate side, and where the market has come from. You know, it's funny because when when I first looked at these numbers and I had to look twice to see how it was worded because my first thought was, okay, all the people who have been laid off or lost income, maybe this is them answering, you know, things are so bad they couldn't possibly be worse. So a year from now, things are going to be peachy. That, that, that's my, that was my first sort of inclination. Doesn't seem that's the case. Um, this is legitimately people who as you describe, either have saved money or are seeing the stock market bounce back or something else. And and I want to go back to your point for a second that you just raised. I think an awful lot of people have, by not by choice, but by force, stumbled onto this idea of having a lot of extra money lying around because they're not driving, they're not going to restaurants, they're not going to stores. And suddenly maybe they're looking at their bank balance and saying, wait a second, where did all that money come from? Sure. And when we talk about the new normal, Scott, the new normal is not going back to exactly the way we were pre-COVID-19. It is still... You don't think so? Distant. You don't... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, you don't, you don't think everybody, as soon as we're allowed back out, because now Hamilton, <laughs> you know, we're hearing that we're in phase two, you don't think everyone on Friday is rushing out and going to go to a restaurant and spend all that money again? I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I think people are still very cautious about how they're doing things. Sure, you're going to have people that are going to jump back out. They're going to try to resume more normalcy. And I think it'll be a slow progression, but it won't be for everyone. Certainly a lot of the people that I've been speaking to are very cautious about um, kind of moving back to the way things were. And so there'll still be that reduced amount of uh, spending, I think. And I think this is something that won't, uh, won't resolve immediately. It will take through time. So so long as income levels remain uh, as they were and spending levels still are somewhat subdued, there is that forced savings. There is that opportunity to, um, to do more with money that, than, than spend it immediately. Do you think, though, that people – does this kind of thing become a habit? Or because it was forced upon you as opposed to by choice, will we go back to our old habits? Um, you know, certainly, you know, the memories will fade through time as, you know, if there's a cure, obviously, that's found, or if um, we're very successful and, and responsible in terms of uh, keeping the spread of the virus at bay, uh, I think we will move towards normal. But I don't think the old normal is going to be the new normal anytime soon. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, uh, Raymond, I don't want to, again, we're trying to concentrate on the good news here. We are hearing that the government is going to extend the CERB program now for a while, but we don't know at some point that's going to end. Is that when you have a massive government program like that, that is propping up an awful lot of people, when that ends, is that going to have a trickle down effect? Because that's an awful lot of people then who may not have any money to spend that could affect a lot of the other businesses that the people who are feeling really good about might be working in. Is, could, are we risking that when that stops, the sentiment changes or do you think it's consistent? You know, I don't think the sentiment will change. I think, um, 
as that program starts to wind down and less money flows through that, the offset is the reopening of the economy. Certainly you've seen south of the border a lot of emphasis on the need to reopen quickly to get the economy back going. I think in Canada we've taken a bit more of a cautious, measured approach, but things are moving today. Certainly Holton Region, uh, it was announced Holton Region, I think on Friday, is going to move to phase two. So that gradual reopening of the economy, I think, is going to replace what the CERB funds were intended to do, and that was never meant to be permanent. It was meant to be transitory to weather them through a period of closures, but as those closures change, others those closures reopen, then I think uh, things will equalize. Do you get the sense that most of the 25% of these people, and of course you haven't interviewed all of them, I get that, but that they are in positions and jobs and occupations that are, if you've been able to ride it out this far with optimism, even if there's a second wave, you're still going to be pretty good in a pretty good position to ride this out again? Yeah, well, I, I think part of it is, is the fact that they're still earning income, but I think there's also, um, when you look at how the markets have performed, a lot of people get very anxious when, when markets drop, and generally, the, if you look back at uh, a lot of the other financial crises, 2008 as an example, it was a much more protracted recovery. We saw markets fall so sharply, it's got over a three-week period, but we've seen this gradual increase over three months that we've effectively recovered more than half of the fall. So I think there's a lot of optimism that has been garnered from that. Uh, in addition to that, those who um, look at this as an opportunity, and we've certainly had those conversations with many clients, focus on a disciplined framework, look for uh, investment opportunities that will do well in an environment like this. And for those who have proactively sought out those types of investments, been smart about planning how they invest. Don't panic because those who panicked are probably really regretting it, getting, maybe getting out of the market a week or two or maybe, even, God forbid, three weeks into the market crash, the very bottom, and then sitting on the sidelines, not jumping back in. It's, um, it's really hurt them. But for those who have worked with a financial advisor who've been smart about it, controlled their emotions, this has been a huge opportunity for them. What, what percent, and I, it's just a guess, what percent of people, when you talk to them, gauge the strength of the economy solely or almost solely on the stock market because they see those numbers? They're a very tangible number that you can look at. Do most people think the economy rises and falls entirely with the stock market? I think there's a, a large number of people who will look at their own savings plans, will look at their RSPs, for instance, their TFSAs, and look at the value of those investment pools. And when those are down, they get very nervous. When those have been um, rising and recovering, I think there's a general level of optimism. So that's probably a, a more indicative gauge of sentiment than looking at GDP numbers or the unemployment rate. Some folks who are sophisticated might you know, have access and understand all that, but everyone understands the value of their own investments. And that generally now is available for everyone to see day by day. And, and the numbers have been rising. Numbers have been going back up. Sort of right off the top, 25% are saying they feel very optimistic that their finances are going to be great going forward. Everything's peachy. Do you expect that is a typical number or is that lower or that high? I mean, 25% is great that that many people in this economy feel good about it, but would that be lower than normal or would that be higher than normal? Or is that the same as normal? 
I'd only be hazarding a guess here, but I suspect sure. it's much higher than normal. I, I think, you know, we've come off such a, a notable event, Scott, with, with what we've gone through, such an unprecedented event. And the fact that we've come through to this point, there seems to be more light at the end of the tunnel. You know, maybe there's another wave. Maybe the market takes another dip. No one knows for certain, right? But I think that at this point, having gone through the darkest days, and now business is starting to reopen. The economy, or sorry, the stock market, still being in relatively decent shape. It's uh, it's it's quite remarkable, and I think that in itself are feeding some of those numbers. Raymond Sawicki, Chief Investment Officer at Mandeville Private Client, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, again, you know, when we can find some good news, a quarter of Canadians feeling really good about the economy. I did not expect expect that. I'll take it. I'll take it because you hope that that 25% sprinkles into others. And next time we see the poll that it's up to 30% or 35% because the economy requires confidence. The economy requires confidence. If you are confident, if you spend, the money goes back in, the money goes back in, people get hired on and on and on. It's good news. Stick around though, because the bad news is never far away. And that's coming up after the break. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. For some time now, we have been hearing here in Hamilton that due to what's going on in the world, the city could be facing a $60 million deficit. And I hate to keep repeating myself, but for those who haven't heard this before, this is important because municipalities by law are not permitted to run an operating deficit. You could take out money to borrow for a capital project, building a building or something, but not for the day-to-day operation of the city. This has to be paid off. That's the way the law is. And $60 million is a big nut in a city the size of Hamilton. Ah, but it gets so much worse. So much worse. I know. Uh, This week, a report said that number could now rise $122 million that we are in the hole. And with every $9 million, give or take, with every $9 million representing a 1% increase in your taxes, you start doing the math, that's pushing a 14% tax hike next year before we get to any of the usual increases for salary increases or whatever else. Let's say it's a typical year, that's another 3%. We're talking almost a 17% tax hike we could be looking at. It's ugly. It is ugly. And it's a nightmare for those sitting around the council table who now are going to have to vote on this and bear the rage of those who are going to face these bills or these cuts or whatever else. Brad Clark is the counselor for Ward 9. He joins me now. Brad, how are you tonight? Doing fine. How are you? I'm okay. Um, Have you started yet contemplating what you might have to do next year if we don't get bailed out by the feds or or the province? It is horrifying. It, it truly is. I mean, sixty-six million to one hundred and twenty-two million dollars uh, in deficit, which means that we've spent more than we brought in in revenue, and a part of that is lost revenue as well as additional expenditures that were a direct result of the provincial orders that we had to enforce as a municipality. And my frustration is we still at this point in time, do not have a firm commitment from the feds or the province to help bail out the municipalities when it was the senior levels of government that put those provincial orders in place that we had to to ensure everyone complied with. 
Yeah, and, you know, look, I know that the mayor has been a part of this big city mayor's caucus that has been lobbying the provincial government, and it's been turning around and saying, we can't do this by ourselves. We need help from the federal government. And it's saying, well, it's pointing to the fact that it's now going to be a trillion dollars in debt. And it, it Brad, I, I'm not sure where the bailout comes from. It seems like it's necessary, but I don't know who's going to be the one to write the check because it seems like nobody wants to. And that's my apprehension. You hit it right on the head. It, it, my, my, I guess, inclination is that um, the feds basically rolled out the money barrel through this COVID crisis and gave money to businesses, gave money to individuals who lost their job, beefed up the EI, did all of the right things, um, rental programs, you name it. Then the province did the exact same thing. And now as we're getting closer and closer to the time when they have to make a decision in terms of how they help the municipalities, which incidentally, Scott, they have been saying all along, we will make you whole. Don't worry, we'll be there for you. They're not there for us. Well, uh, and you wonder if when they said we will make you whole, if they had any idea how much money they were actually going to be spending to keep things going, and now they look at it and go, oy, 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 what are we doing? And, and now they're looking at billions more to bail out the municipalities across the country, um, which is a huge figure added on top of everything else they, they've already spent. Right, and because it's not just Hamilton. It's correct. literally every city across the country is going to need 50, 100, 200, a billion dollars. A hundred percent. That's exactly the issue. And so I'm watching, I, you know me, I'm a political junkie. I watch body language. I watch the statements. I listen very carefully to what they're saying. And now we have the prime minister pointing to the provinces all of a sudden and saying, well, the municipalities are creatures of the province. You have to talk to the province. And then you've got the province saying, well, now no, let's just wait a minute now. Uh, we don't have this kind of money. We can't do it on our own. We need the feds. <laughs> and they're both sending signals that they're not coming to the table, and the people who are going to get hit hard are the property owners. Right, and I want to get into that because there are, in my mind, I mean, look, there's always three. People always talk about the three possibilities for a city to raise taxes. One is to bring in more business, which can then spend. That seems like it's a it, it can't happen possibly fast enough or in a big enough way to deal with this right now. So then it's either cuts or it's increases. And if my math is anywhere close to correct in the intro, if you guys don't make we are talking about 15, 16 cents, which is fine for some people, I suppose. But if, especially if you're someone on a limited income and you've been in a house for 50 years and you bought it for not very much, and now it's worth a lot. So your taxes are already the, the levy is through the roof. You're, you're screwed. Absolutely, and I, and I really believe that the vast majority of residents in Hamilton would be on the negative side. They would be hurting from these increases. Very few people, 1%, 2%, are wealthy enough to absorb a 17% increase. So I'm not on for that. I'm not on for 7%. I want the feds and the province to do what they said they were going to do and make us whole. And if they fail to do that, from my perspective then we start looking at cuts to services and we make sure that everyone knows who forced us to do that. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Brad, just before we get to the cuts, the other side about this is if you raise many of the people, part of the reason why Hamilton is facing this deficit right now is because you've given a kind of an amnesty to people who have been out of work. You don't have to pay your property taxes right now. We'll give you a little bit of leeway. But at when the leeway ends, many of these people are still going to be without work and we could be into a second wave at some point. And if you now have to, even if you do some cuts, but raise property taxes 10% and it's not just you who will be coming after, because we know the federal and provincial governments are going to have to raise some taxes on some things. You're not going to be able to extract blood out of a stone from these people who don't have work. So then what? Well, we always, we always get our property taxes eventually. So it's, it's when the property sells, if the worst case scenario happens, that we would get our property taxes. But that's a, a very cold and callous way of looking at it, almost a, a, a sanitary way of, of looking at it. Um, the, the fact is that we have many people who are hoping that the recovery gets them back to work and enables them to, to have an income to start paying their bills. But we don't know if that's going to happen. We don't know how long the recovery period will take. Today we heard, for example, the $122 million is if there's a 12-month-long recovery period into 2021. So after the second wave, we still have a very slow recovery. We're in trouble. And so these are the things that, that, that we're wrestling with. And, and it doesn't really, it doesn't matter how you look at it the end of the day, the feds and the province said to all of the municipalities, here's our provincial orders. We've declared a state of emergency. We now insist that you comply with these orders and enforce these orders and, and, and do the work on contact tracing, all the things that we had to do in public health. And all we have received from the province so far is $13 million. Now, it sounds like a lot of money. But when you're facing down a $60 million to $122 million deficit, it's a drop in the bucket. So you and, don't raise taxes then. Let's say you decide you're going to do the other option, which is, as you said, to do some cuts. Uh, one thing we all know from lots of experience is that the moment you start to talk about cuts, people lose their mind because everyone has sacred cows and things that are very dear to them. Where do you start? How do you start? Well, we've already started. Uh, we've asked our staff to look at all of the capital projects uh, that are in the hopper right now, ready to proceed, and how much money could we defer if we deferred those capital projects. So today we heard from our staff indicating that upwards of $29 million could be saved this year in 2020 simply by deferring those capital projects to an out year. And we've done that before. But Scott, we've also got ourselves into a $3 billion fiscal deficit on our capital projects because Mm -hmm. we have done that before. So every time we defer these capital projects, lots of other issues happen. The roads fall apart worse. I mean, we could go on and on. So... (laughs) There's and even no if you take 29 million out, yeah, even if you yeah. take 29 million out, it's still 90 million potentially in a worst case scenario, Correct. you're still down. So there's no easy answer to this other than the province and the feds recognize that they put the municipalities in this situation and they should come to the table and help us. 
put the partisan politics aside, put their fiscal situation aside. They didn't worry about that when they were, were, were bailing out businesses, help bail out the municipalities, because otherwise it's grandma, it's grandpa who's living on a fixed income, whose property taxes are going to go up 7 to 17% that they're going to have a real problem with. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it, I mean, I just, I look at this and I think it's not even just when you, you mentioned before the break that you, you make the cuts if you have to, and you hope that people realize who forced your hand. That may be optimistic because as soon as you start to make the cuts, it's you guys that wear this. And I don't think too many people are feeling too, you know, too badly for city councillors. You chose to get into this, not into this particular thing. I don't mm-hmm. think anyone signed up for this. Um, nonetheless, uh, it, it will be, it'll be bloodletting around the council table because we've already seen it with all kinds of other things. Everybody has their things that they feel absolutely cannot be cut. And you start delving into some of those things and man, it is going to be ugly if that starts to have to happen. I don't think we've ever seen a situation where the city council starts out their budget process with a high double digit increase that they're now trying to pare back. And what about raises? Because the unions, I would assume, are all going to want to negotiate those that have contracts up. Do you have any confidence you could go to the unions that might be due for a negotiation and say, guys, women, sorry, come on, not this year? Or do you think that would just fall on deaf ears? Much of the collective bargaining has already taken place. And those collective agreements are signed, sealed and, and in play. So they will expect their increase, whatever it is, one to two percent, whatever the case is for each each individual union, on the annual basis, because that is their agreement with the city. So you're you're absolutely correct. All of these things will pile up, and we we really need the province to understand that we're not the only ones. By the way, every municipality in the province of Ontario. Of course, is that's in the this problem. Box. That's the problem because if it was just Hamilton, they could say, "Sure, we can help you out." But uh, yeah, here's another not billion. so much. <laughs> yeah, uh, Councillor Brad Clark, always appreciate the time. I'm sure we'll be talking about this again. We do. I do appreciate you stopping in, though. Thanks for my doing pleasure. This. You're doing a great job there, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in, probably fresh off the tractor from mowing his 72 acres of prime beautiful grass. I was going to say prime farmland, but it's just lawn really. I mean, he's got a beautiful lawn. It goes as far as the eye can see up at Robertson Acres. Don Robertson, yeah. owner of the Dundas Real McCoys, Com Choice Realty, all those things. Best lawn in the city, I'll tell you that, or even outside the city. <laughs> well, it's big, Scott, I'll tell you that. It's uh, Sometimes it looks better than it, than it uh, seems as worth when you're cutting it, but I enjoy it and it's uh, it's quite nice and Lucky for me, there's no mosquitoes this time of the year, so it's very enjoyable. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the mosquitoes. That would uh, that would suck at certain times of the year. Well, down at the back, they get uh, they can get a little they get to be about your size uh, when they get really <laughs> ramped up. It's a little swampy at the back, so anyway, they're, yeah. they're a fair size, but they're not around, and it's windy out here, so it, everything's good. I have a, uh, I have, I was going to say a love-hate relationship. I don't. I have a hate-hate relationship with mosquitoes. Ever since years ago, I got bitten by a few and ended up with malaria in the South Pacific. Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of the whole mosquito thing. So I'll, I'll leave that. Now, you're not going to get malaria here, I understand. But still, it's, you know, 
PTSD or something. Worried about, you shouldn't be too worried about Corona if you can survive malaria. Yeah, you know, I, I have yet to find anyone who says that one covers against the other, because if it does, if, you know, if having malaria means that you don't get COVID, I, you know, great, but I, I, I'm, no one's told me that yet, so I, I'm, I'm still waiting. Yeah, uh, they know yet. They don't know anything yet, sadly. Hopefully soon. No. Yeah. So, you know, Don, a, a name popped up in the news yesterday that I had not seen or heard in years years and yet the moment you heard the name at least the moment i heard the name a flood of things came back because for a time this woman may have been among either the most famous or infamous people in southern ontario and we learned yesterday that yolanda ballard had died 87 years old and uh, she had been i mean when was the last time you heard yolanda ballard's name might be 20 years yeah I mean, it's, it's she was kind of famous when uh <clears throat> pal hal owned the uh tie cats and and tc puck and he had all kinds of pets yolanda the dog but it was uh it was kind of cool they never married she took his name anyway he didn't care but nope she was uh she by all accounts was a delightful lady as well which is kind of nice well first thing i was sh- at, reading the obituary today I was absolutely stunned that he died in 1990. It seems to me impossible that he's been dead for 30 years. That, that doesn't seem possible that, that it's been that long. Maybe that's what you get when you're larger than life. I don't know. But, I mean, it's been a long time that he's wow. been gone. That it is, and apparently it wasn't his curse that kept the Leafs from winning the Stanley Cup. Well, it may have been partially, but... Uh, well, they were yeah, only 27 years deep when he died. Yeah, no, he, he just started it. He, he got the thing going, and then they forgot to... Uh, I mean, I, what do you do to end the curse of Harold Ballard? With, with the Cubs, you could... You know, they had the billy goat curse, so I think they tried to, like, put voodoo on a goat or something to try and end that one. And they did other things. That they, in, in fact, with the Cubs, remember, they, they blew up the ball that Bartman was supposed to have... That Bartman caught that one time. They put it in a machine, and they literally blew it up, hoping to end the curse. I don't know what you do to end the Harold Ballard curse. No, I think that's going to live on for, for perhaps ever. I mean, he uh, he was an interesting character. I remember <laughs> the year um, that the National Hockey League decided to put the players' names on the back of the sweaters, and uh, he didn't want to because he thought it had hurt his program sales. <laughs> you wouldn't have to find a program to. Uh, you know the story I'm going to tell you. I do. I've heard this before, but yeah, tell it. It's great. It's uh, so they were going to find him substantially if he didn't put the players' names. So when they wore white at home, he put everybody's every player's name on with white letters. <laughs> and blue on blue. And blue on blue, yep. So he, he complied. He was a crafty old bugger though. But you he know, was he was uh it was worth the price of admission. He won a won a great cup while he owned the tie cats, so <clears throat> my old my old roommate Kenny Hobart was a quarterback then. You had a, your roommate was Ken Hobart. Yeah, for two years while he played for Hamilton. And why why were you roommates with Ken Hobart? Well, uh, Joe Latsovich and Brian and Lloyd and I owned the Collins Hotel at the time, and I was only selling commercial real estate and keeping an eye on that. And uh, we started the quarterback club, but out come Kenny, and he and I started getting along. And 
he said to me, can you find me a place to live next year when I come back? I said, sure. <laughs> Walked in the bar the next summer. He said, how'd you make out? I said, well, I guess you're going to live with me. I forgot to find you a place. <laughs> so he said, that's fine. He was from Kamii, Idaho, and uh, he moved to Linden. And I'll tell you, it was uh, he was a pretty big hit. I wasn't there on Halloween night. But he had to keep going to the store. I think we had 500 kids, and he signed autographs all night because it was a pretty big deal to have the Ticat quarterback living in Linden. No so he was a, He was a, an absolute stellar guy. I haven't talked to him in about five years. He owned a bowling alley back home, and he's selling outdoor advertising now, billboard advertising. But he was just uh, humble. I mean, he was just, uh, you know, we, we went up to my parents' cottage, and he, my mother thought it was so cool. She was a big Ticat fan, and... It was uh, it was interesting times. There was always uh, always lots of activity at the house. And was was Ballard the owner of the team at that time? Or yeah, would that have been before him. No, that was right around when Ballard had it. I think it was eighty eighty six. They won it. Got to be pretty good friends with Mike Dirks and some of the other guys. But uh, they were they football guys. Uh, uh, well, the ones I knew and Paul Osbaldison were very much like hockey players. You know, they didn't go on and on and they didn't, they weren't full of themselves and, uh, and, you know, Hobie was an American, but he was, he was just brilliant. He went on to San Diego and was a defensive back for them, which is it, uh, because he was big and strong. He, he, uh, set the rushing, uh, record for quarterbacks and he may have led the league. He had like 900 yards. There's probably some tie cat fans that will correct me on that, but he was a, he was a big galoot too. Eh? He played like a linebacker, but he was a quarterback. When uh, so okay, so he's he's around during the Ballard years in Hamilton, and and I still to this day now I was not living in Hamilton at the time. Uh, that was that was just before I moved here. But I have always believed that the only reason that Harold Ballard owned the Hamilton Ticats was not any great love of CFL football, sadly. It was solely for the purpose of rubbing it in the noses of people in Toronto. I I would concur with that. And then his uh, Hobart's contract after they won, I forget it was a huge contract, which ultimately led to his demise because Ballard didn't want to lose him. Part of his contract was you got $5,000 to start. That's, I mean, they were making more money back then, I would bet, than they are now. Well, they may be making that kind of money now, but it was pretty big money. You know, they brought up, uh, who was that guy that Montreal Alouettes brought up, first-round first draft pick? I mean, they were, you know, they started, they decided to start bidding with uh, the NFL guys. Forget his name. He wasn't a quarterback. And they got they had Rocket, but that was uh, that was that was uh, Toronto, yeah. And Bruce McNall and stuff like that. But Hobie got five thousand dollars to start. I said to him, I said, "What if they start putting you in every second place?" Said, "Oh, they wouldn't do that." And I went, "You don't know Ballard like everybody else does." But they no. didn't. They didn't do that to him. Uh, no, and, and you know, like the stories of Ballard, and this is the thing, I, Don, you could tell a million of them. I could tell some of them. If you're under thirty years old, so you know, even 35, let's say. So you weren't really old enough to remember when Ballard was Ballard. There is no, I'm trying to think of any other owner in the modern era that would be similar. And I'm not, I'm sure there is one, but I really can't think of, I mean, Steinber- Steinbrenner. Stein- for a, Steinbrenner in New York was the same. For a while, but he wasn't, but he wasn't exactly the same because Steinbrenner was nuts at times and he was, 
uh, unpredictable, but Steinbrenner wanted <laughs> desperately to win. Steinbrenner's thing was, you better win yeah. or I'm going to fire you, among other things. Ballard, it was, it was just insanity half the time, more than half the time. It was just yeah, to be on the front like, page of the his, paper. His desire to win wasn't the same. as I mean, he brought Hammerstrom over and, and nicknamed him the Chicken Swede because he didn't like the way he played. He brought him over with Borea Salming, which is, you really got to be dated to know those names. But that was, that was his style. But one of the unique things Harold Ballard did, and you're right, you'd have to be, holy cow, you'd have to be 40 to remember much of him. But he would, um, if the Argos were going to win the Grey Cup or there was going to be a big Blue Jay game, he, because it was a leaf town, no matter what. It didn't matter what the Argos did. It didn't matter what the Blue Jays did. There were no Raptors. But he, he would upstage the other premier sports at key times and, and, and release a leaf story and try and, and usually did steal the headlines. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was, that was, it, I, I truly believe to him. Yeah. I think he would have liked to have won the Stanley Cup. He won it four times. His name is on the cup four times. But I don't know that it was ever on the cup as the sole or majority no, well, owner. He never was able to do that. And I think he would have loved to have win to, to win the cup, but I think that it was almost as good for him just to be on the front page. Every time he got that attention, uh, you know, and, and I mean, imagine today, and, and I mean, I know sports, Don, I know sports is different now today, but the story, he tried to trade Daryl Sittler, who was the biggest star in Toronto at the time, for whatever reason, that couldn't happen. So he orchestrates a trade of Lanny McDonald just to bug Sittler. And I'm trying to think of, if you were the owner of the team now, the way sports works with social media and everything else, if you were the guy who trades the second best player on your team just to drive the best player insane and gets back basically spare parts, a little bit better than spare parts, but not equal, what would the reaction be in 2020 if you did that? I mean, back then it was like, oh, he's just nuts and people were mad. But now people would lose their minds. Well, they would lose their minds. And can you imagine if he could run a Twitter feed like the president? Lord <laughs> knows what he'd be saying. It would be entertaining. You know, he used to live in Maple Leaf Gardens. He had a big apartment in there. Yep. So he, so he never left the building. Him and, yep. him and yep. King Clancy, his sidekick. And King Clancy came to all the Ticat games. You know, they go up the elevator. Yeah, they put in the elevator. They put in the elevator so they could get up to the press box. No, th there's a great story that about about Harold Ballard that uh, it's got nothing to do with the Leafs. There's a million about the Leafs, but this may be my all-time favorite story, is that when the Beatles came to Toronto in, I guess it would have been 64 <laughs> that they came, or 65 by the time they got here. It was in the middle of the summer when they had their show, he turned off the air conditioning in Maple Leaf Gardens and turned off the water fountains. So everybody would have to buy extra drinks. And then he sold tickets for two shows for the Beatles, a, a matinee and a nighttime show, even though the Beatles had only agreed to do one. And then told them, you guys are going to be responsible for the riot if you don't play the second show. And they did. They did. And Harold Ballard got his second show and made all the money from it. It was, I mean, you know, he was, go ahead. One of, the, one of the other tricks he did, apparently, during concerts in the summertime, you know, because there was no air conditioning in Old Maple Leaf Gardens at the time. Uh, and, I mean, th these stories came from Leafs. He would turn the temperature of the water fountains up so the water was so warm you'd have to go buy a pop. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, like it's uh, creative, them off creative things like that, right? Or, or shut them off or have them down so low that, you know, they were useless. So you'd have to go buy a drink. And, and they didn't sell beer, of course, back then. Imagine if, and it's hard now because, again, I mean, it's almost, in a way, it's almost better that he was what he was in a weird way because the stories in retrospect are much better than the other stuff. But if he had, this evil genius, if he had applied his creativity and all this kind of stuff towards working for good, you wonder if the Leafs would have won another cup before now. You really do. I do. Well, I mean, the odds are they should have won one anyway, no matter what he did. Yeah, but I mean, like in the 70s when he traded McDonald and did a bunch of other things, you go, had he kept that team together and added a piece or two, don't forget there was no salary cap. I mean, he could have spent any money he wanted, and he was bringing it. He's the guy who originated the idea of the Carlton Street cash box on Maple, on uh, that Maple Leaf Gardens. Had he not been so destructive and so determined that he was going to be the headline, it, I, I believe it's almost impossible to consider that that team with Sittler and McDonald and Tiger Williams and Salming and Ian Turnbull and Mike Palmer, that, that, that team would have won a cup at some point. I have to believe. Yeah, they were close. I mean, they were, they were good enough to compete, but he did. You're right. He did whack. I mean, the trader Rick Vive almost straight to the Dundas real McCoy's <laughs> that might've been 15 Worked years later, you. but remember they, he, he traded Rick Vive. His captain has scored 50 goals three years in a row. Traded him to Chicago. He did. You're right. It was um, some of it, I think, was shock value. And some of it was spite. And it cost him, you're right, opportunities to perhaps win a Stanley Cup. And how different is his legacy and his reputation is when when Yolanda Ballard now passes away and we talk about Yolanda first of all we don't end up talking about Yolanda we talk about Harold yeah he's uh well she, she had to be a unique lady too to live with him oh yeah oh yeah I mean I, I, I the stories that you hear about her is that she somehow angled him in a way that she sort of corralled him to be somewhat okay. And he clearly was, you know, he clearly liked her and all the rest, but boy, oh boy, there was, uh, she had, she probably should have worked in a prison somewhere. If you can, if you can corral Harold Ballard into going in directions that you want to, you could probably be good with almost anyway. Interesting that, uh, her name popped up. I hadn't heard Yolanda Ballard in, as you say, hadn't heard Yolanda Ballard's name in decades. And, uh, and she passed away this, uh, well, last week, I guess it was, or June 3rd, whatever that was, June 3rd, a couple weeks ago at age 87, but we're just learning about it now. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, just before we carry on, you have a little business to attend to. Um, why don't you, uh, give the shout out to your, um, birthday person? Well, yes, we had the great opportunity to go up to see uh, Bridget and Jared in Port Perry Saturday, and she's selling, celebrating a birthday today, and I thought I should wish her a happy birthday. So happy she birthday, is? Bridget. Hope it was a good day. She is the tender age of 35. Well, I wasn't asking her age. I was saying, who is she? <laughs> she's Susan's daughter. Sorry. Okay. She's Susan's your, your stepdaughter. Daughter. Okay. 
my stepdaughter, and Suze must have been about 10 when she was born. I think so. Yes, yes. Suze, Suze is only 32 right now, so it's, it was negative years. 32 is right. You're better at this than I am. Well, my math is exceptional. That's why I had to take grade nine math twice. Um, speaking of math, Don, speaking of math, you know who's not good at math? Well, they may be really good at math. I don't know. I, I'm looking at his not Major good League at math. Baseball players? In the owners. Major exactly right. How is it possible? And, and I know we've mentioned this before. I've been on with this before. Okay. At a time when so many people in the world don't have a job right now, or they are relying on government assistance of some kind, or the job they have is tenuous, or the money they're bringing in is less, how is it possible? that Major League Baseball players and owners who not one of them is not making hundreds of thousands of dollars and the vast majority are making millions, can't find a way to find common ground and play a game this summer. Don, how is this possible? Well, first of all, it proves it's not about the fans, although they're going to tell us it is. And so they're going to want to bring the game back for the fans. But for so many years, and it was... Oddly enough, Scott, it seemed to be getting away from calling athletes spoiled, rotten brats. You know, everybody just seemed to start accepting the fact that some of these guys were going to make millions and hundreds of millions of dollars to play a sport that so many guys would play for free or for half the price, including them. But everybody quit calling them spoiled brats, right, because they were making too much money. And they started to seemingly wear their money better. But this is not good for baseball. It's not good for the owners, and I think it's probably worse on the players because nobody feels bad for either one of them. You're right, because they make gobs of money. But the interesting, the interesting thing is the players don't seem to care that the owners can't sell tickets to the games. So my bet is somebody's going to blink, and if the players don't, give in a little bit, they're not going to get anything. Now the owners are going to, you know, they're going to take a whack too. The interesting thing I don't know, and, 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 there, and there's not many things I don't think I know, is there may be, there may be some um, language in the television contracts that if a season is missed, the payments go down because we're going to lose some of our audience by virtue of the fact that we didn't have games on TV. Like, you don't know how those TV console, the owners may be more anxious to get this going than the players, but it does affect the players' income. Like the, like the, the NHL players I get, because you know what? They get, they get paid during the salary cap era, and the more money the league makes, the more money the players can make. So the players are vested in that. Major League Baseball, that's not the case. Well, you mentioned about the owners losing money and, and this is why, you know, I, like generally I'm not picking sides on who I think is right or wrong in this because again, the owners are billionaires and the players are all multi-millionaires and neither are sympathetic characters. But in this particular case, you're right. The owners cannot sell tickets, can't sell beer, can't sell hats, can't sell hot dogs, can't sell whatever else. And somebody I read today has done the math, and if you base it on an average attendance, whatever else, forget the TV deals. There's lots of money there, but we're talking about two point something, two point two billion, I think it was dollars, on a reduced season 
that the owners are out. 2.2 billion just on ticket sales and all that other stuff that, uh, that was just ticket sales. Now it's not even counting all the others. So let's say it's $5 billion, $4 billion. And the players are saying, too bad, that's you. We want 50%. If we're going to play 50% of a season, we want 50% of our salary and you can absorb all that stuff. And I'm looking at this going, Don, I, I, again, I'm not picking sides, but if you're the players and the owners, how can you not say, here's how much we're going to lose. Let's find somewhere down the middle and agree to it. But the players, you're right. The players don't seem to see that they have any responsibility for the finances. Just pay us our money and you sort out that stuff. And to me, that just, it seems illogical. It seems irresponsible. It seems dull headed. I don't even know what the right word is. You can't just ask the owners to absorb three or $4 billion and say too bad. So sad. Yeah. I think the players are on the wrong side of this one. At least all the evidence seems to be pointing that way was the, and you'll remember his name, the pitcher from uh, Tampa Bay who said, if you don't, if you don't give me all my money, I'm not going to play. I'm risking my life. Well, if you actually think you're risking your life by playing, don't play. I mean, if that's your take on it, like if you're concerned about your safety, then don't play. Like it was, it was announced today, a bunch of the, uh, there were two teams. One of them was the uh, Dallas Cowboys and a bunch of them have tested positive. Well, you know, if it's a legitimate concern and you're worried about your health and the fact that you could die because of the uh, coronavirus, then don't play. There isn't enough money in the world to make me play. It's not a money issue. Like, you know, I, I'm prepared to risk my life, but I want all my salary. Yeah. Really? That's a logical stance? <laughs> yeah, I'm well, not, I mean, it, I'm not it prepared does... to risk my life for half my salary. It, it does suggest something about something, and I'm not exactly sure what that is. But I mean, look, if you said to me, I need you to go blindfolded and work with a table saw, and we're going to pay you half your salary, and I say, no, no, but I'll do it for f- all my salary, it still is insane. If I mean, as you, to your point, if this truly is something that you are totally fearful of, that it's going to cost you your life, there shouldn't be an amount of money. That should be the, deci- the the deciding point for this. Um, but what he's saying is, I can be bought off, and what I'm saying is, people that are taking that position may may be in a position that others would say they're not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Well, it, to me, it's about not forward thinking. And, you know, the interesting thing is there was just, uh, you know, we've talked on the show a number of times about tw- about 30 for 30, the ESPN series that TSN always plays, yeah. these documentaries that are generally terrific. And I haven't seen it yet, but there's one, and it may be recording tonight on TSN here, about the summer of 98 with Maguire and Sosa in the home run chase. And that home run chase really saved baseball because after the strike of 1994, baseball was in a world of hurt because the fans were totally yeah. turned off between the fighting between the owners and the players for this very reason is you guys are all making globs of money, sort it out and get it done and get on the field. And when they didn't, it was a huge problem and fans turned away in droves. And I'm looking at this as the, from the player's perspective saying you are being in my mind, extremely short-sighted because the reality is if there's no baseball this year, how many people find something else to do or don't come back or get angry and say, screw it, I'm not coming back again. 
And yeah, you know what? The guys at the very, 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 very top end are still going to get their money. But a lot of the other guys, if the proceeds, if the revenues go down, Don, a lot of people are going to lose money. And for what? So that you didn't lose a couple hundred thousand or a million dollars this one year out of your career, but you can make millions the rest of your career. It, it just, it, it, it makes no sense the to fall, me whatsoever. The, the fallout is, is huge. Um, if you look at the lockout or I guess the lockout, the year the NHL lost, how many players didn't play their final season of their contract and ended up retiring? Like there were, there, there weren't like three. There was a lot of guys that never played again. And the same thing will happen in Major League Baseball. But I want to I want to touch on some because you you made as always you made an interesting point when you talk about McGuire and Socha and baseball really needed that and you're dead on they really did, but the owners knew that these guys or ought to have known these guys were juiced, and quite frankly I don't think they cared if they walked up if McGuire walked up with a needle coming out of his arm, so because it, you're right it brought fans back it was a very compelling summer. Interesting, though, that these guys are both locked out of the Hall of Fame because of it. Yeah, it's, it's, there is, I have sympathy for guys who are losing lots and lots and lots of money. I mean, guys like Mike Trout, who are at the top, could lose tens of millions of dollars. I get that. What seems to be lost, though, again, to me, is the, is the connection with reality that it doesn't seem the players realize we are in really odd times and everybody or many people throughout society are struggling and losing some money. Somehow there is this view that they should be exempt from feeling any of the same pressures that other people feel and they already do because of the money they make. But it's almost like, you know what, the owners and players, what they should have in there is a group of a bunch of people who are average Joes who have lost their jobs as the people in there to help negotiate this thing and say, I'll tell you what, yeah, we'll help you. We'll sort through who gets what money and we can do this in five minutes by telling you the reality. But anyway, it's, it's, if they, I said this, I said this in, in the paper the other day, if they can't sort this out, Don, a pox on all of them. There is no way that with the money that you have at your disposal that there should be any possible way you can't sort this thing out and play baseball. Zero. Zero way this should not be sorted out. I want to see if, if they lose the season, and I, I don't think they will, quite frankly. The, the, the commissioner today said that he's concerned that will happen. Of course, it's a negotiating ploy, right? I mean, they're, gonna, they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're playing their own chess game. But if, if in fact, it does, if in fact they can't come to an agreement, which I agree with you would would be, uh, I mean, you and I could go sort it out for them. But if they lose the season, what do the players say? Like, how do the players say we did this for the fans? We did this in the best interest of the game. Like the the players are really, I think, in a far worse position than the owners are because the owners by the account of a lot of laymen would think, you know, they, they're down $4 billion using your number, and they can't pay these guys as much as they did. Everybody can figure that out. Nobody can figure out why they can't come to some kind of a, an agreement with all that money in the pot. But at least an average guy can understand, well, they can't appreciate it, I couldn't, what $4 billion looks like. 
But if a company's losing $4 billion, how can its employees be expected, and, and in essence, that's what they are, how can the employees be expected to get almost all of their wages? I don't see a clear path for the players to be able to sell it, to, to, to regain the credibility they'd like to regain. I don't, I'll tell you, the, the PR guy that can spin that one, if he can pull it off, he's a genius. And, and just before we go to break, I, I want to be clear. I'm not entirely on the side of the owners here as well. If you've got this situation with this lost ticket revenue, I don't believe the owners should have to wear all of it. I don't believe the players should have to wear all of it. No, and I would even say that if you're going to split it down the middle, I don't even mind if you don't split it right down the middle because the owners are going to get a bigger percentage anyway. So make it 60-40 that the owners have to take only 40% and the players get 60%. Uh, that, that's fine too. But somehow it's illogical that neither side, that either side is completely exempt from the pain. Here, here might be the real challenge for the owners though. I don't know, pardon me, I don't know if the players know that because they're not in the salary cap era, what the owners actually bring in a year from all sources of revenue. I don't know if that's on the table and the owners may not want it on the table. It's a, um, we'll see. We'll see if it's all just negotiating ploy right now, but my goodness, if they can't sort out this at this time when so many other people are hurting, if you cannot sort this out too bad on you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Got a few minutes left here with Don Robertson before he gets back on the tractor and mows the 300 acres again. He has to do it three times a day. It grows that fast these days. Um, twice a week. Do you do it twice a week? It's, um, and how, how much gas do you ta- does it take? Because you drive a giant tractor thing for it. How, how much gas is that? Uh, Probably more than I've had in my car in a month. I've got more miles on my mower than you got on your car. It's true. It's true. I've been barely, I had to drive the other day just to remember how to drive. I almost forgot it's been so long. (laughs) So the Toronto Raptors announced, or at least it's, I don't know if they've announced it. It has leaked out that they are going to be tweaking their uniform again, doing some more changes to their uniform. Uh, Don, we all understand why teams change their uniform. It's entirely to get someone to go out and buy a new one of their uniforms and make more money, but it it, it almost seems as though these teams need to be stopped from tweaking, that we need to have somebody from the league say, you're allowed to change your uniform once every 10 years, and then you can use what you've got or one of your old ones, but you can't keep... This is, I mean, in sports, it's getting ridiculous. The number of tweaks to uniforms just to sell some new product. It's stupid. It's, it's, it's all, it is marketing, right? You're trying to, I mean, it is all the things you talked about, but it, I don't know if it's necessary. I think you're right. I think there should be a limitation on what they can do, or at least stick with one uniform to be consistent. And if fans want to buy that one, then at least they're, you know, they're okay. Like the Chicago Blackhawks wear the same sweater Bobby Hall wore. Uh-huh. Or very close. I, th- I think it's or, maybe t- a tiny change, but it's not like they've suddenly got a cartoon figure, you know, or something. But you, well, I mean, the Toronto Raptors. Right? I mean, well, they, Red Wings. Yeah, Leafs. It's very similar. The, the Raptors that I can think of have the old purple Barney dinosaur ones. They've now got the red and white ones. They've got the black and gold Drake ones. They've got a white and purple one. 
Uh, there's a couple other ones. I mean, there's there's at least five or six Raptors uniforms. That's not enough. You can't cycle those through within those five or six and get by for a season. You have to have another one. Yeah. No, it's it's. I mean, uh, insanity is close. But it, it, you know, this is all done at the league level, though, too, Scott. Yeah, I know. I mean, they I mean, have this... league mar- They have league marketing meetings. And they talk about different things to create interest, to do this, to do that. And, you know, we're talking about the Raptors, but, I mean, are the Dallas Mavericks doing the same thing? Are, you know, are the Nets probably. tweaking theirs? So, I mean, but if I you don't did think it every it's probably few years. unique. No, but if you did yeah. it every five to ten years and you can make a big deal about it, and then people will go out and buy these things because they're brand new. I, I mean, I'm just off the top of my head thinking here about, okay, what other uniforms and what other sports are there more than enough of now so we for the life of us don't need any more vancouver canucks come to mind i mean the canucks have the original they've got the one with the c that looks like a a, an orca they've got the and that's in blue and that's also in that orange and black and yellow color then they've got the flying v they've got a bunch like they, they have more than enough that we don't need any more vancouver canucks uniforms ever again as long as we live the LA Kings are the same thing. They've got the purple, they've got the gold, they've got the black, they've got the silver, they've got the one that looked like a Burger King logo for a while that they wore, the roller hockey one. <laughs> we we don't need more uniforms. But the, obviously there are some people who are dumb enough to go out and buy a new one every time they tweak it just a little bit. Oh, I need the new one now that, you know. What would what would happen, Don, if people said if nobody went out and bought the new one? Do you think they'd stop? Uh yes. Or would they retweak it because they didn't tweak it properly that time? No, I think they'd stop it. The Vancouver Canucks, when they put that orange or that yellow and orange and black V, there should have been a moratorium on them wearing any logo. They should have just wore blank blank fronts for five years as a punishment. Look at remember that they, they were a takeoff of the old Houston Astros. Yep. But you're right. I mean they 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 should like I can see a third jersey just to mix it up a little bit and guys have fun with it and you know you can buy your uncle one if he's a big Leaf fan or a Raptors fan. You know what I mean? But you're right. They don't need four or five different versions of of and then it's uh, oddly enough they they generally try and come up with some kind of a T-shirt for the playoffs so everybody will buy those or. A sponsor gives them to them. Then I get it. Jets used to have a whiteout. I get it. I get why the teams are doing it because fans are dumb enough to go out and buy new ones every single time. You know, one other team that just came to mind that has changed their logo, I bet 10 times, is the Toronto Blue Jays. The Blue Jays, and sometimes it's very subtle, but sometimes they've had, remember they had the black and silver T scripted T and they've had the, the maple leaf uh, flag with the bird head and they've had different versions of the bird head. And every time, if, if everybody just said, you know what, guys, I've got nine uniform shirts for the blue Jays. I don't need another one. No, thank you. I, they might stop getting rid of the powder blue one was a good change. The pajamas. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, that would, they uh, they could have changed that one a little bit earlier, but that's not back in the era when they did. I mean, how are the Yankees making out? Like, think about They're, all the teams: the Red that, Sox, that the Canadians, change. Bruins. Yeah, they do okay. 
The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.